Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides on the quest to RPG adventures. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we are all devoted role players and storytellers at heart, and we absolutely love sharing our passion with you. In our main podcast episodes, we discuss D&D 5e's core rules and ever-expanding content, while also showcasing other RPG systems and bringing you fresh, new projects from indie content creators. Let us help you get the most out of your story, no matter what game world you're playing in, because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules can make any campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. What if I told you there's a world where not only are monsters like vampires and werewolves real, but they have rights just like you and me. And in this world, there exists a secret government organization dedicated to keeping you safe and making sure they follow the rules. Welcome to Anarium a Monster of the Week podcast. Each episode, you will follow the story of three agents of Anarium, played by Rob Hamilton, Taylor Catron, and Cameron Bain, as they navigate through the treacherous world that Game Master Samuel Herbert has imagined for them. Tune in on Spotify, iTunes, or whatever your preferred podcast platform is. It's dangerous out there, folks. So, remember, leave the monster hunting to us. The professionals. Welcome everybody to today's episode. So we are smack dab in the middle of our critical role month over here on Tabletop Journeys. Uh, so let's get going with tonight's episode. Lewinika Glenn, how are you doing this fine evening? Doing wonderfully well. Right before the time of this recording, my 15-year-old brought me a pair of dad jokes. I don't know why he thought it like I should test all his dad jokes now. He actually had one that like threw me a smile. It was pretty good. I will not I will spare the audience, but the other ones were right terrible. So fabulous. <laughs> fabulous. You mentioned dad jokes and don't actually provide. <sighs> they're his jokes. They're his okay. jokes to tell. <laughs> I'm just here to tell you that they're getting better. That's you're, all. you're just you're, you're just Excellent. teasing. Yes, (laughs) absolutely fabulous. Spring has sprung and we are less than a week at the point of recording this. We are less than a week after the release of our latest and greatest book. Traveler's Guide to the Multiverse right now is available on DMs Guild. You can get the link down below. It is 60 pages of multiplanar, multi-time, multi-everything. My goodness, for your character backgrounds, feats, magic items galore, and like 20-something pages of plot hooks because that's what we do around here. We like telling stories. Mm -hmm. 
So go check it out. Speaking of great books, we're going to continue kind of our discussion of uh, The Call of the Netherdeep and have another guest in-house for us tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, mm-hmm. Sadie Lowry, one of the writers from Call of the Netherdeep, is joining us today. Uh, Sadie, welcome to Tabletop Journeys. And Critical Role Month. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. We are super excited. Thank you very much for coming on here tonight. For folks that are, as I say all the time, living under a rock and don't know who you are, share a little bit about about who you are and the projects that you've been working on. Sure. As you said, my name is Sadie Lowry. I am a writer, editor, game designer, hobbyist artist in the tabletop space. I started here probably about two and a half years ago with a couple Eberron adventures. And since then, it's just been like explosive in the cool projects that I get to work on. I've gotten to work on uh, Arcadia from MCDM, Uncaged Goddesses, which just came out recently, Eyes Unclouded. I was an editor on Kingdoms and Warfare from MCDM. And then my latest and such a cool project, as you said, <laughs> is was being one of the writers for Call of the Nether Deep with Cassandra Kaw under the leads, which were James Hake, Matthew Mercer, Chris Perkins. Oh, and Mackenzie DeArmis also was one of the writers. Yeah. Fabulous. It really is a fantastic book. So last week we did our deep dive into Call of the Nether Deep, and man, the content in that book is just so good. So happy to go ahead and have you on here to go ahead and, and pick your brain about what this process must have been like. We talk a lot of Dungeons & Dragons on this show, obviously, being a tabletop role-playing game-themed mm-hmm. show. We do a lot of deep dives into the books, and it was I would say this without you on the show, and we said it last week when we were talking about Call of the Nether Deep. it was nice to see a really good quality book come out of Wizards of the Coast this year, because... We had some questions about some of the books that came out kind of at the end of last year and how the production schedule was rushed and everything like that. So kudos to you. Really, really impressed with Call of the Netherdeep uh, uh, when it came out. And really uh, a great introduction for us to kind of the critical role world too, because really before Vox Machina came out, the series on Amazon, and before Call of the Netherdeep came out, the three of us admittedly were had never really interacted with critical role before. And so this was really kind of a fabulous like introduction to to the world that Matt Mercer has created. So kudos to all of you guys over there. Thank I you would, so much. I think of the three of us, I had the most critical role experience because I had heavily used uh, the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount in my game. So I oh. borrowed uh, a lot of creatures, a lot of character types, and played at tables where Blood Hunters and, and other things had been prevalent. So I was mm-hmm. aware of the book, but I had never really read it. I actually owned it on D&D Beyond, but never read it like as a book, cover to cover kind of thing to kind of see what it was really about because I was not into Critical Role. At the insistence of one of our patrons and good friends, we finally said, we're going to do this. We're going to make a whole month about it. We walked the show and I really loved the show and it caused me to want to do more. I actually bought my Peldori book, the last one in my local shop, and I had Netherdeep pre-ordered before it even came out on D&D Beyond and I picked up the, the real copy shortly thereafter. It is definitely something that I have been wanting to talk to more of the content creators because you did something that I didn't think was possible. And I played D&D since 1983. Wow. I have never read an adventure module, like just started reading it, said, man, I got to play this right now as is. Until I read this. And that's not to say that other ones aren't good or can't be run well. And he's not exaggerating. He's been singing the praises of this book in our chats and in our other meetings since we started reading it. I mean, yeah, yeah. I can tell you, like 
other things excite me. Like, oh, that's cool character. That's a cool thing. I could borrow that. I could borrow this. I just want to play this. That I don't say often or lightly. So I really appreciate everything you and your team have put into and brought forward in this book. And I desperately just have all these questions that really surround, like, how do you get there? Like, where does something like this start? Obviously, it starts with Critical Role, Matt Mercer and his group, what they've done and put out a product and put out an adventure. But I guess the geek in me wants to know the nuts and bolts of how you put together a product. You've got multiple writers working on a single adventure story. How does that come together? When does the proverbial phone ring or the email go, ding, you've got mail? You know? <laughs> How yeah. does that? How did that happen? How did that come? come yeah, to be? yeah, I can speak to some of that. What I know from before when I came on was that James Hake was considering some writers. Hannah Rose, who you spoke to, mm-hmm. knew some of my work. I had read one of my earlier Eberron adventures, which had kind of touched on a little bit of horror and emotions and that kind of thing. And she said, you know, maybe go look at Sadie's work. So I got the proverbial ding. I got the message in my inbox that was like. Hi, Sadie. Can I see some writing samples from you? I have a project that you might be a good fit for. I sent him some writing samples. He liked the work. And next thing I knew, I was getting messages about the the first Critical Role adventure book. You should have seen me. I was like pacing my living room in circles, <laughs> like yelling to my husband. I was like, Chris, this isn't a joke, right? I'm not being pranked. And he, um Low under the person who ever pranks a content creator like that. Holy crap. (laughs) I know. So we got brought on. This was probably in November. And then James scheduled our first kickoff meeting in December. As far as the nuts and bolts go, that meeting was super productive. It basically, he showed up, he had an atlas that outlined the story that he and Matt had been working on. He, so he gave us the rundown. He, you know, this is Elixian in his life. This is how he came to be trapped in the nether deep here are the rivals that we want to work into the adventure and it was already fairly constructed it was a it was a very solid outline you know bazazan the emerald loop caravan stop and then Ankarel, and then the nether deep from there we picked chapters i kind i saw i heard the pitch for the nether deep and it was like a place twisted by emotions and memories and i went oh i want that one that's so cool <laughs> to nice. me. and so from there we had Christmas break to sort of think about it. We started kind of really actually writing, at least I did, because I value my Christmas break, but started <laughs> started writing in January. And from there, we had kind of weekly meetings. And that was where, you know, we could bounce ideas off of each other, see what other people were working on, make overall decisions. Like the, he wasn't always called the Apotheon, for example. Um, he was called the Paragon at first. And we thought that that was too, like typical fantasy you know people yeah. if you've played mass effect you've heard the word paragon right and <laughs> if you watch cw idea. superhero shows it was a big thing during crisis on infinite earth i, I <laughs> guilty yeah. as charged yeah. um, <laughs> he's wearing a superman shirt for i was gonna say yeah, the yeah. podcast yeah. can't see you fairly consistently i have like five or six of them that is that. a true story. He is often in a Superman shirt, and I am often in a Batman shirt. It is yeah. or a Batman sweatshirt, sometimes both. Oh my gosh! Stumbling <laughs> so, up Batman. Having been one of the folks that was lucky enough to go ahead and play test some of this material, I can say that this was man probably 
September or so. Oh. We got to run the adventure when you first go down into the depths and you get attacked by the Ruidium shark. That kind of that first, as you, when you go down into the cathedral there and just kind of start to see the Ruidium and everything like that, I was impressed with sort of the way that the the quest was structured and the just the, man, the difficulty was uh, surprisingly difficult. And so, okay, this adventure's got some meat to it. It's really got some, uh, got some stuff to it here. And so I guess what I wanted to poke on, and, and Han will say we asked her the same kind of difficult questions at the beginning here. So what's kind it. of the part of the book that you're most proud of, that you either worked on or uh, consulted on in the process here? And you're like, yeah, you know what? That's really, really good. And I'm really glad that it's making it in there. Yeah. You're right. That is a hard question. Yeah. Um, yep. Okay. I. <laughs> this is so hard. I like so many things about it. I really like that it is, and and this is so true of Critical Role, right? I I like that it's so character driven from the overall story to how it treats you know your PCs. There are some adventure modules where you feel like I think small fish in a big pond, and there's there's an allure to playing that way, right? Like that you kind of, you know, you're not the only adventurers out there or that, you know, you kind of have to work hard to make a real name for yourself. I like that kind of play too. But from the very beginning, Call of the Netherdeep kind of tells you, you know, you are important and your choices are important. And these NPCs that you meet are important and you have a real chance to change someone's life if you follow this road i think that that is also powerful storytelling and and for the right groups like that is just like life-changing storytelling that's the kind of storytelling that my group likes is the kind that says you are entering this world with with some semblance of power and you can change so much of both things very large and very small. Like you can change people's lives on a very micro level f through your choices and your actions. And I think that Call the Nether Deep really, really taps into that, like the, the satisfaction and the catharsis of knowing that there is this person that you are not only saving, you know, like Mario goes to the castle and saves the princess, but you are also you are healing him, you are connecting with him, you are bonding with him. That to me is extremely cathartic. And I love that about it. I love the design of the Netherdeep a lot. And I don't say that just because I worked on it. <laughs> That's not me bragging. But the I, I talked about this on Twitter a little bit. I love the idea. I think that the Netherdeep opens up a lot of potential design space and inspiration because you have a whole plane that is warped and twisted and and effused infused with elixian's emotions and that manifests in how it looks that manifests in its monsters that manifests in the scenes that you see and i love the nether deep not just for how cool it was to work on that specifically and and imagine those scenes and write that specific content which was cool like coming up with the bedroom his childhood bedroom or you know these visions that he saw that was cool but i love the idea that someone can read that and then go well if it's possible to have a plane based on elixian's emotions what other planes are out there and where can I take my players? Yeah. I think that's so cool because you can have, you know, you can read this and get inspiration for planes 
based off of your PCs, based, you know, that they happen to fall into, or your villains, or anything, any entity. Yeah. And I I think it's it was it's such it's so creative. It definitely is. So one of the things that the the three of us have in common is that we all used to LARP way back in the nineties when it was still cool. And it's we did still pretty cool. We we did well, it, it's it's less cool now than it used to be, but that's okay. I appreciate that because we still really <laughs> enjoy LARPing. But we did a lot of vampire LARPing. Very also cool. Yeah, I also did a lot of of Werewolf the Apocalypse LARPing. Also, I used to run like a werewolf game and everything like that. And one of the things about the Netherdeep that struck me as I was reading kind of about the way that it was built is how is that emotional connection that that kind of drives the design of it and how much it struck me as kind of like some aspects of the dark umbra and stuff like that where it's like the very emotion of the place shapes the nature of the place and it's a, just a really cool kind of uh, kind of twist it's i think on some level it's it is some of what we have tried to bring into um our representations of the shadowfell and some of the things that we do so it's kind of like that too but yeah. almost like, like bigger and better and darker and scarier and bigger you know so it I is, loved it. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, it is definitely something that did bring to my mind one of the LARPs that I ran for a were werewolf game where one of the characters had a very dark secret and the group had to deal with that. And whenever they were in the Umbra and around that individual, those secrets would warp the Umbra around uh, them as a group because they were unwittingly protecting him uh, <gasps> without them even knowing he had this dark secret. Oh, and so like things would happen to them there and things would happen to them. Some things would cross over and interactions with other groups who didn't want to deal with them or dealt with them harshly were happening because of this dark seeker. That was kind of like the core of the, the game. It was actually the central mystery of the game. So as I've been going through guy. Call of the Netherdeep, one of the things that I've been most taken by is it is its complexity without being terribly complex. But there are a lot of pieces intertwined elegantly and well between the rivals and the way that they play through the story and the different tiers for them and down to specific tips on how to play them in the different scenarios and the relationship tracking. And then all the way into when you're getting into the final chapter where you're hitting the actual nether deep itself and there's another new mechanic to be introduced with the fragments. Like each section adds a new piece and they all work really, really great. But the question that it really brought to my mind as a writer, because I kind of ride the line between the numbers guy and the full creative, but I write really well in the middle, so it kind of works out, was how as a writer do you work with the numbers people with the balance? How does that piece work together when they're trying to balance the new mechanic? I mean, as the writer, are you writing the mechanic or does the numbers guy come up with that? Is it a collaboration? It really depends on the project, but yeah, that's a good question. I can tell you that the writers for this project did do some of their own, you know, at least as far as I know, like I know that I did some of my own design. I do not profess to be a numbers person, but I try to be a numbers person in so far as my projects ask me to be. For projects where I'm not necessarily the one doing the numbers, I would say I think that they inform each other. And if you get a good partnership going, they can inform each other in really good ways because numbers and mechanics complement writing and writing complements mechanics you know it's right. like if you read a cool piece of lore something that says you know what's this uh, there's a really spooky boss that you know it's you hear that he's hard to get away from because he has these gravity things that pull you in so that he can smash down on you and then you go to the stat block and that represented 
in some kind of, you know, strength saving throw to avoid being pulled 10 feet toward him. And if you fail, he gets to make an automatic, you know, melee attack against you. That's really cool. But then you also, you know, there have been times where my friend Amber, who is my numbers guru, I I just love her. And I'll like, I'll design something and then I'll show it to her. Like, does my numbers guru approve? Did I do a good job? You know, I I feel that. I feel that a lot. <laughs> and it's always hard on projects that are NDA where I can't show it to her. It's like I have to trust <laughs> myself and just fling it into the void. But there are some times where she comes to me with this amazing monster design. Like she came up with a, you've played WoW, you know what I'm talking about, where yeah. she came up with a, a monster that did a donut attack, yeah. which is not something I'd seen in 5e before. And that kind of set my mind racing. How would I flavor that in the text? How, how would you flavor something that can hit 10 feet away in a circle, but not something that is within five feet. And I was immediately thinking maybe like some kind of, you know, spiked ball on a chain that he swings around or, you know, maybe some kind of, and and I, I remember coming up with three different options, like bam, bam, bam. And so it's like when you sort of let that the relationship breathe and you re- you recognize that they can inform each other then it can actually be extremely easy to to be like hey numbers person can you make this work hey flavor person can you make this work right pour some um, sauce on this right yeah <laughs> I, I, I'm with I, you. that makes good sense because that would that kind of speaks to the heart of my question was how does it work when you're trying to work together right if yeah. somebody's really good at coming up with the mechanic but then they're not so good at the other piece. Yeah. Uh, having just with the writing exercise we've just been through, the number of times that I was told, hey, can you like, this is great, but put some sauce on it. Like I can't, I don't lore actually sauce. get, yeah, I need, oh, yeah. what we called yeah, it, lore sauce. Add, add, lore sauce. Add more lore sauce. Yeah. I love that. A little bit of lore sauce, yeah. So. And, and for me, I, there is a lot of, here's what I wrote. I have no idea how to make this mechanically work, but <laughs> give me something that I can see in my head that matches this. And then it'd be like, okay, let's bend that a little bit. And then we try to get it, you know, very much the way Josh and I did music back in our band days, which is, uh, I'm here, I'm thinking this song, it should go something like do to do to do. And Josh could like literally just write that out and make it beautiful. And I I like, I have no idea how he does it, but I I was like, yeah, I can sing that now. (laughs) I have a master's degree that shows you how I do that. (laughs) (laughs) Money well spent. Yeah. There'll be times where it's, I don't know exactly how something is going to work. So I'll be like, okay, Amber, if I, if I want to say that this boss is extremely good at like crowd control, what would you do with that? And, and she'll come back to me with three abilities and it's exactly like, it's, you know, it's, I didn't have to map out what those abilities were, just what I wanted them to do. And then she comes back and she's okay. He can uh, teleport as a bonus action. He stuns and da, da, da. And then, you know, that gets, I'm like, okay, perfect. And then I go, right. The flavor it's kind of, that's always fun too, where it's okay. I give you the vague juice. You give me the details. Now I get in with the real juice. <laughs> right, right, right. I like okay. it. I I love those kinds of collaborations, those creative processes. And yeah, that, that sounds like the virtual writer's room must have been a blast to be a part of. Um, can you speak along those lines? Can you kind of speak to some of the elements of that? What was it like uh, working with the pe- with the folks on this? Like how many of them had you worked with before? Or was this the first time you worked with some of these, some of the folks uh, on this book? 
Yeah. So this was my first time definitely working with basically everyone on this team. In terms of the design that I did, it was actually very iterative. Iterated. I don't know if that's a word. I might have just made that word up. I don't know. I do that makeup words all the time. I, I call myself a wordsmith <laughs> for a reason. Exactly. We're writers. We're allowed, right? Yeah. The the thing, this design that I can speak to the most, and it's actually really funny because almost none of it made it into the final product, but the design I can speak <laughs> to the most is Elixian's fight. And that is definitely an example of like, you know, iterating on something and making it better every pass. The first pass, I had something that was extremely complicated and, you know, over overly mechanically complex it introduced a new like point system i think and it like you could he had like an emotional health bar as well as a real hit bar and <laughs> you could use a i don't remember like a bonus action to knock away some of the emotional it was it, it was janky <laughs> i'll just say that it was, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was, a too it much was not smooth at all yeah. yeah and i remember showing it to i talked to joey a little bit about it and he was like show it to mckenzie to armis and she took a look and she came back and she was like, the first thing I can tell you is that this is too complicated. And I was like, and <laughs> yes, you're right. Yes, um, that. <laughs> and that was kind of cool to watch be iterated down into something that I think is actually very, very smooth and elegant. It's what it showed me is that you can do new design that still plays with 5e's rules right like you don't have to make a new hit bar <laughs> you don't have to you know make up your own point system you can use the existing rules and and that was a really cool experience for me was just watching someone who knew that we needed this to be more streamlined for a general audience we needed to not confuse people and she went, well, this is how I would do it. And I think we integrated her her suggestions. And then I think it went into Wizard's House. And then they integrated even more feedback. And then it got mm -hmm. even simpler. And that was a good learning experience for me as a person trying to become a better numbers designer. It was just watching it go from my overcomplicated mess <laughs> to this fairly straightforward you know, the straightforward thing that I think runs very smoothly. It was also cool to see... Sometimes, occasionally, I would make little comments on, um, on like a monster in a like in a room. I would write something like, you know, this monster has disadvantage if the characters have a source of light with them or something. And I would watch James highlight it for himself, and he would go integrate that into the full stat block. And I was like, oh, <gasps> I'm, I'm. Like, cool. I'm maybe nudging the the monster design a little bit. That was, that was also fun. The ability to watch that – that was one of my favorite parts of the entire process too is, again, being like the numbers guy is kind of like the conversations that Lee Winika and I would have as he was on the road into work and I'd be – ignoring meetings at my job and just kind of like, okay so i have this i have this thing i know that I, they want to do this but i don't know how to write it so it actually sounds like something cool but i think the effect would be cool give me flavor <laughs> i don't know what to do you know uh, i had a question just based sure. off of listening to all of what you just told us which was fantastic but specifically picking up terminology that you use that just automatically comes out like health bar and emotion <laughs> bar i knew and i know you're a gamer um <laughs> I 
knew as I was saying it, I was like, oh, I picked the gamer word for this. That's awesome. I love it because it's going to make it, it leads to a question I've been wanting to ask, but you get and you gave me a good segue for it, which was with as much of a gamer as you are, because in looking at your uh, about page, you're into quite a few. Mm -hmm. Uh, The one we have most in common being World of Warcraft. Yep. How much does your online gaming, the immersive worlds that are so popular in today's games and the the vibrant worlds that come to life like World of Warcraft, how much does that play into or has that played into your desire and inspiration to be a writer, creator and translate into your tabletop writing? Yeah, that's a good question. I could talk your ear off about that all night, I think. But I I'll... thought it might take a little while, but that's okay. Yeah. We got time. <laughs> um, actually, and I've said this before in, a, in another interview, but I think I need to mention it again here. There is a World of Warcraft reference in the Nether Deep that I put in. Do you know what it is? Did you catch it? Ooh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you read it, you would recognize it immediately. Can I spoil it for you? Oh, yeah, go ahead. I love spoilers. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Okay. So I was playing World of Warcraft one day while I was writing this and I was I, I I had been like writing and writing and writing for a week and I was like, I need a day to just play World of Warcraft. Mm. And so <laughs> I sat day. down. Important thing to have. Yep. And I I started playing Wrath of the Lich King. And the question that I had at the time that was in my brain just percolating around was what do I do with the vents of fury to make them as emotionally resonant as the other two? Because the grottos of regret are very, you're literally in Elixian's head. You are seeing his visions. You are feeling his regrets. That's easy. The chasm of yearning is showing you things that he wants, things that he didn't get to have. It's evocative, but in a very like eerie off-putting way, like the room with the hands. Still, you get what he wants or you get what he didn't get to have. The vents of fury were a manifestation of his anger. And anger is can, can be very righteous and very good, but it can also be very off-putting. If I am going through seven rooms and they are all just full of pissed off monsters that are him being mad at me and trying to kill me, that's not going to make me empathize with him very much, right? Mm-hmm. And right. so what do I do with the vents of fury? And I played Wrath of the Lich King and all of a sudden, without in the middle of a quest – and I didn't really know what was going on. It was like some kind of fetch quest that I wasn't really in, in like super engaged in right off the bat. I was like, fine, I'll do it for the XP. <laughs> and what I remember is that I fell down a hole. I grabbed a thing that the NPC told me to grab. And I was like, how the heck am I going to get back up there? This is really annoying. And then this this creepy dialogue popped up. It was this child saying, you shouldn't have done that. And I was in- instantly hooked. I was like, okay okay, this is the good stuff. And this child basically tells you, you shouldn't have touched that. Now the Lich King is going to hunt you down. And that thing is connected to him and you're in trouble. But the quest chain takes you along. You talk to the child at a couple of points and he tells you things that are vaguely interesting about the Lich King. And I thought that's really interesting like this because there were theories that the child was a manifestation of the lich king or Mm. his childhood psyche or his innocence and i remember messaging joey very frantic frank frantically (laughs) and i was like we need to get on a call now and he was like no we can get on a call tomorrow and i was like okay (laughs) i will sit on this for a day that's fine (laughs) Um, and 
So the next day I hop on a call really excitedly and I'm like, I want to do what this quest did. I want there to be in the events of fury. Like it's still going to be this malicious. Yes. My little boy. Ghost child. Yes. My yes. son. Um, I was going to say, I was like, Oh, that must be the ghostly child. Yeah. Yes. So I was like, I want there to be a manifestation amidst all this anger of the purest innocence of Elixir. Like the, a connection to his soul. You can be in the angriest part of him, but if you touch the spear, you know, he comes and he talks you through this anger. And Joey was like, yeah, I dig it. And then we talked about it in a, in a bigger meeting. I remember Matt saying, I like the idea that gives a hint for the final boss fight that he literally tells you, you don't need to kill Elixian, you need to save him. You need to challenge him. You need to peel back this rotting resentment around his heart and help him heal and that <laughs> and that completely changed the vents of fury for me so i made theo the little ghost boy and i also hearkened unto in in, in world of warcraft like the lich king never actually comes and hunts you down like that you shouldn't have done <laughs> that he's gonna find you it doesn't play out like nothing happens but right. in call of the nether deep it does because a big ruidium elixian starts hunting you and trying to kill you but nice. At the same time, Theo will show up in different rooms and he will tell you, like, this is what Elixine feels about this certain thing. This is a kind of a, a shard of his soul. I think I even had a few more scenes of Theo that didn't make it into the final because I, I wanted the players to be able to ask him questions and to feel like they were kind of getting to know a a shard of Elixian as they explore yeah. the vents of fury. So yes, you could say that video games <laughs> inspire yeah. my writing. To get back to your larger question, I love... I, I realized when I came into D&D and, and just tabletop RPGs in general that I was a very character-centric player and DM. And I think that was influenced by video games and and by my history in gaming. I'm always, I've been very drawn to RPGs where you are the hero, right? JRPGs are really good at being like, you are the chosen one who's going to save everything, you know? And a lot of my, a lot of my favorite formative games growing up, like Legend of Zelda, even Persona and its, its emphasis on emotions and catharsis and that kind of thing i can see how they influenced who i was as, as both a player and gm and so when i came then into designing i wanted to bring those kinds of moments to other players and so they absolutely inform that for me how do you challenge players personal or characters personally how do you make how do you help them overcome what they're struggling with how do you make them feel like a hero how do you have them connect to the world around them and i i feel like you know you said immersive worlds i love living breathing worlds i love worlds that change around you i love villains that aren't just sitting in a castle like doing their little villainy things and then you stumble on steepling their fingers yeah (laughs) i love villains that like show up multiple times and heck you up and you know at least taunt you yeah taunt you i one time i this character was like repeatedly agitating this archangel villain of mine and so when she got back to her own country she found out that he had bought her family's land and built a temple to an evil god on it just to be petty (laughs) and she was so mad but i i love that kind of (laughs) 
interactive, reactive, active, you know, I love that relationship of even even just the idea that a villain can be petty enough to be like, look what I did with your house. That is some LaSombra level action right there. That is, <laughs> that is exactly what half of the vampire villains I've ever played would do. Hey there, travelers. Do you want early access to all of our episodes? How about exclusive content, live broadcasts, and the chance to throw dice with your favorite hosts and fellow fans? You can do all that by signing up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. But wait, there's more. For the next month, you can get a free coffee mug for signing up at the Adventurer level, plus Adventurer-level Patreons automatically get complimentary copies of our latest book, The Traveler's Guide to the Multiverse, available on DMs Guild. We love doing this show for y'all, and your support helps us keep creating and producing great content for you. We have tiers to fit any budget for a monthly commitment, so join us today at www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. I wanted to go outside of Call of the Netherdeep for just a second, and I wanted to talk about some of your other projects. And I see that you have uh, at least one platinum and two silver level publications on DMs Guild. So first of all, congratulations on those. As burgeoning content creators ourselves who are trying to get into the DMs Guild world and everything like that, we're going to pick your brain a little bit here and ask, what are some of the things that someone who wants to get into the DMs Guild world really needs to know to be successful there. So first of all, uh, I looked up when you were like introducing the Traveler's Guide to the Multiverse. I was like, oh, yeah. what? And I went yeah. and looked it up while you were talking and it looks really cool, y'all. This is we, awesome. I might, we think I might it's really this. good. <laughs> yeah, we truly like, like, hope like, you do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to buy this when we're done here, okay? <laughs> if you do, let us know what you think. I will. Yeah. Please rate and um, review. Unfortunately, as a creator, I cannot review and, and rate on the DMs Guild, but I will tell you oh, in email yeah. that I love yeah. it very much. How's that? Oh, uh, that Thank you very much. I'll make sure to put that quote in our next book. Yeah. But no, that's a good question. And it's a question that every <laughs> every blossoming TTRPG creator is always trying to answer. I can tell you some of the things that I've learned. I think that, and this is... This is the th- like the advice that I hate giving because it sounds so corporate, but it's it's helped me immensely. I think that new TTRPG creators should invest in doing a little bit of market research, and that's a scary word for people who don't have never done market research. But uh, market research is actually as simple as looking at the top banners and see what is selling and what's selling well and what people like. If you have an idea, go see if other people have done that, and if they have, what did people like about it? What did they not like about it? And is, you know, is there a way that you could do it better or different that you think would hit the audience better? It's knowing who your audience is and trying to target them and thinking about ways to connect with them. You know, what does your audience want? What do they know you for? And what needs of theirs can you fill? It's learning to write good marketing copy and learning how to market yourself on Twitter, which I'm still learning like two and a half years later. So like my, like in, in the time that I've been on DMs Guild, what I've learned is that adventures can be hard to move. But you can also establish yourself as an adventure creator. Like you could be JVC Perry or MT Black. You can establish yourself as an adventure creator. Again, if you find that audience, that's great. But a lot of the things that sell really well are things that people 
fill a niche that people didn't like. They're simple, they're streamlined, they fill a niche that people didn't realize they need. I love Ancestral Weapons. That is a cool supplement and props to that creator. That is probably the very third thing I ever bought on DMs Guild. Yeah, it's same. And, and I say the third because I bought two other. I bought a map pack of some kind or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I bought the Ancestry is in Cultures book or whatever. The one yeah, that, that little pamphlet that or whatever. that Because I love that. I love the way they described races better in that book than I've ever seen before. Yeah. Um, and Let's I go. thought that was really well done. So those, like, I bought those are like the first things. And then basically, now it's like I have to hide my wallet when I look at DMs. Go, I put it in a different room. And, I know, same but, here. Because um, there's there's a lot of good stuff there. But yeah. I, there's so much good stuff there, and you'll see that the things that like consistently dominate like the top ten are things that fill again like just interesting niches like ancestral weapons puzzles predicaments and perplexities because who doesn't need more i hate coming up with puzzles i want someone Mm. to just hand puzzles to me so that's my like my first tip is get comfortable with market research my second tip is to network genuinely there's and and that's an, a hard beast as well but people can always tell when you're trying to use them to get a leg up and some of my best opportunities and like some of my coolest projects have come from people who just knew what I did, knew that I did good, consistent work, knew that I hit my deadlines, that I communicate well and that I work hard and they would recommend me for things or pull me onto a project they were doing and supporting them in their projects as well. I mean, yeah, that's networking and it's for your benefit, but it's also just cool to support people and see what they're doing and buy their stuff because People are out there doing amazingly cool things every day. I have a a bookshelf full of like indie games that who knows when I'll get to play them, but I supported someone I love. It gets me thinking about Mm. really interesting design, right? I would say there are, and just based on your supplement, you don't need this. This is beautiful. But there are (laughs) a lot of guides out there on creating things for for not a lot of money, not a lot of investment. There's a bunch of stock art. There's a lot of resources out there that can help you. And collaborate with people. That's again, I got a lot of my opportunities just because people know what I do and what I can do. There's a lot of power in someone being able to say, yeah, I worked with Sadie and she was solid. Again, so many of my opportunities have come from someone just going like, yes, Sadie, really solid work. And so collaborations on DMs Guild don't always bring in a lot of money lucratively because you're splitting that royalty share between so many people but what they can do for you is you know prove your you know prove your work ethic and your work quality to other people get you a a growing network um, of people that you know and that you can recommend for other things and just start to get your name out to places that it wasn't before i had some amazing collaborations early in my ttrpg career that like i wouldn't trade for anything Adventures, Domestic Handbook, Darkhold Secrets of the Zentrum, just having those opened the door to so many other things. <laughs> you mentioned the Domestics Handbook, and I saw that when looking at your page. And for some reason, I don't know why I had missed that previously, but that is another. That is one of those projects that's right up my alley because it's about um, relationships. It is currently in my cart when I do my DM skill purchase next week. I try to do that like a certain time every month. So 
that is in the cart for that one, but it is definitely right up my alley. It is about if characters build relationships, then players at your table can build relationships. And whether that's PCs and NPCs or PCs with other PCs, it mm-hmm. really builds and creates those memorable moments that you can't take away from people. Like they will always remember different things because of the relationships that were there in that game. Uh. Players remember those moments. So if you have these tool sets and these abilities or these other techniques for bringing that out or really showing that off, that's always going to be a good thing. Yeah, I agree. Some of my favorite game moments were just bonds with other characters, whether that's romantically, familially, platonically. I talk a lot about catharsis and those relationships bring me a lot of catharsis. I feel like you and I game kind of the same way that, you know, we get a lot of catharsis from seeing I that have, I have, without going to, it's my time on the couch moment with it, <laughs> I have grown a lot through my gaming. I have always portrayed characters that are part of my personality or an element obviously mm-hmm. amped up to the nines but uh, <laughs> right of course but the idea being i, I want to work that through to its logical and in some cases illogical conclusion like how far would that go if i was actually that all the time how far would that actually get me in life and mm-hmm. i find games are a really safe space to do that yep. and then it, it allows me to introspect and think about that and and changes my approach to the world. I like to think generally for the positive. I feel I'm a much better person today after 30 plus years of gaming than I was when I started. I I think that's part of that process. That is what makes games enjoyable for me is, again, those relationships, your character growth moments, and uh, any works that bring those out or show how important it is to connect. Call of the Netherdeep does in its very early chapter where you just get to meet the rivals. I think that's an utterly brilliant chapter because you just meet them, not all as a group, not... This is our group versus your group. You right. just kind of like, I'm doing a thing and here, here's this other person and they're having a conversation. We either become friends or we don't. And then the yeah. results of that, the connection or the lack of connection or the deconnection that is formed from that meeting informs what happens later on in the game. What I like is that they're just being people. I love that about that chapter. I think that Latia did such an amazing job on that because they're not there to, I don't know, praise your character or be a a prop or be a set dressing. They are there being people pursuing their interests and whether you partake in that or not, they will pursue that interest and continue to pursue that kind of interest later in the chapter. Like whether you do the riddles or not, Galsariad does the riddles and Galsariad will continue to seek knowledge for the rest of the game. I love how that chapter just has them being people because that makes it, I think easy for players and characters both to feel like they're forming that connection with them. All right. And that's kind of what I think Leonique is saying there too, though, is that a large part of the way that it's written speaks to tabletop journeys in particular, just for the narrative style of our narrative storytelling style. It's very much the way that we like to run our games. It's very much what we're already looking to bring into our games, but concisely crafted into a, neat pat system with a little bow on it that looks really really hot that's, that's um, very cool quite quite posh as our friends across the pond would say <laughs> yeah. 
I, I just love hearing your thoughts on it. Like, it's so cool for me as someone, you know, who, who got to work on it and, and touch some parts of this and, and see it come to life. Like, just hearing your enthusiasm about it is so fulfilling for me. Good. We're, and it's not just it's not just us. Friend of the show, Patreon, Jens, who was in last week's episode as a guest voice. When I was talking to her after I got her to start reading the, the Call of the Nether Deep, because she had bought the book, but she wasn't reading it first. She's not been... Uh, DM very many times. She hasn't read very many modules. And the question she's hit me with is, are they always this detailed? <laughs> you know, are they, Sadly, do they always no. give you this many options? <laughs> you know, like if this, then that. And all of the things that she came up with about how well it was written, like she was just kind of geeking out from the beginning. And now mind you, if you bring up Critical Role, she geeks out. So she was already primed, but she <laughs> thought it was very, very well written as well. So yeah. happy. I love it. <laughs> you, you're... <laughs> I think you're really spot on here, Glenn, because like when you were talking, Sadie, earlier about kind of the about other modules versus this one, right? Mm-hmm. I, what I kept thinking about was the Tomb of Annihilation, right? Where you are this little teeny tiny speck in this gigantic machination happening on this island, right? You've got all the things with a Sarak, and you've got the, the the city at the top of Chult, and you've got all the other parties that are on the island looking for things, and the the hundred of different plot points that can happen. I think that there's just kind of a structural difference between the way that this is written, and I love Tomb of Annihilation. Don't get me wrong. Tomb of Annihilation mm-hmm. is one of my favorite modules of all time. And there, there's a big difference between the way that this is written and that is written. That one is much more – I don't want to say open world is a negative because I like I really enjoy open world stuff. But this is different in the way yeah. that it's structured. So. Well, I think the way I, I would consider it is this. Having loved Tomb of Annihilation in previous iterations, Tomb of Annihilation was – this could be fun, but I wouldn't necessarily want to run this story. I'm going to take mm-hmm. this scene and put it into my homebrew world. I'm going to take mm-hmm. this – and put it there. And again, when I come to this, while there are elements like I want to use those games because I thought they were really cool elsewhere, but I just want to run this story. Like I couldn't tell yeah. you in this moment whether I want to run it more or play it more. <laughs> like that's that to me is a hallmark of a fantastic book. As I read that there are three choices and branches, it could go so many different ways. Like mm-hmm. I yeah. could literally see playing this two or three different times with different tables and have it be different games. And I don't know if I've seen other pre-written modules where that would happen in that same way. I think every table is slightly different, but I I don't think other games that I've read at least have branched quite as well as this one does or allow the weaving of one trail into another or back out into another. Just the way the rivals work up and down, depending on how you work with them or against them. They're just so there are a lot of dials that you can turn to turn up and turn down and tweak the way this goes. As a player, you control that. Yeah. Not even as a storyteller, players really have their hand on the till with this module, and that's pretty impressive. Right. Yeah, I I like that. I, I agree with that. I think that the players drive a lot of this, and that's really cool. Um, just also thinking about something that I think you were saying, Josh, about open world. I've been playing hmm. recently a lot of Elden Ring, which <laughs> has everybody right now. <laughs> yeah, has everybody. I, I I will admit I have played maybe fifteen minutes of a Soulsborne game before this. I think it was Bloodborne, and I got like maybe fifteen minutes into it, and I went, "This is not for me," and I closed the game. But everyone was talking about how 
amazing Elden Ring was. And I was really curious. And so I made a deal with my roommate, which was we would both play the same character and we would sit together on the couch. And when one of us got pissed off, we would just hand the controller to the other person. (laughs) And that would keep us from rage quitting the game. Nice. And it's actually worked out surprisingly well. And I think, and playing Elden Ring around the same time that Call of the Netherdeep has come out has really showed me like the the benefits and the strengths of, you know, open world stories versus very railroaded stories. And I think, you know, like you were saying, we don't want to say open world derogatory as as a negative it's it's not and there's actually something extremely satisfying about i'm just i feel like going around and hecking around over here today and that's (laughs) gonna still make me stronger and that's really cool no matter where i'm going i am progressing and eventually i'll probably become elden lord but until then i just found this weird midsummer village and i'm gonna kill some cultists cool there's a lot of strength in that and what i think that Call of the Nether Deep does well. And I think the reason I like it so much is not because it's railroaded, but because it knows that it is railroaded. And so it says, because I am railroaded, I'm going to use that to my absolute benefit and to my strength. I'm going to pull together all the strengths of a railroaded story. Like, we know you are going to get here before you get here and then you're going to get here. And so we are going to start seeding these emotional scenes very early. And it, 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 it unfolds so beautifully because it knows what it is from the start. And like, that's, I think the, the key to it because tomb of annihilation also knows what it is and curse of Strahd knows what it is. And I think that's kind of what you have to do when you go into making something like is, is it open world? Is it more railroaded? My players like being on the rails. It's comforting to them. Like they, they bulk at a fully open world, like D and D story because they want to know what they should do next to progress the story. And it sounds to me like you are kind of the same way you want to progress the story. And so what I like about Call of the Netherdeep is that it shows you you can have a very fulfilling railroaded story. You can have one that feels good if you know what it is when you go into it and when you pull on the strengths of a railroaded story, using each scene to build on the last one, weaving things out that then weave back in. And yes, you can branch, but that even the branches pull you back in and adjust the story in like little ways and, and ultimately lead you to this thing, to this climax where no matter what road you've taken to get here, you have learned something and you've done amazing things and you can use that to influence the end. And I hope that tabletop companies as they explore making adventures, you know, I don't necessarily as a customer have an opinion like I want to see more open world versus I want to see more railroaded <laughs> stories. I hope that we see both. And I hope that because we as, should. Yeah. And oh, I hope that oh, I like the, the word narrative stories better than railroaded. Yeah, I like that, too. Narrative <laughs> stories. I think that's better. Thank you. You're um, I, I hope that, you know, people identify early on what their story is and lean into that strength because Elden Ring is strong for being an open world game just as strong as Call of the Netherdeep is for being a narratively driven game. Right. 
and you can find a balance in the middle too, you know, as you're mm -hmm. running your own game in your own world or mm -hmm. in your writing. But when you're trying to write it and make it a structured module, trying to find that balance becomes a whole lot harder. You yeah, know, you, can, for you can sure. go completely open world sandbox. You can go narrative focus, but finding a way to mesh the two it can be done, but you know, a little, little bit harder. Yeah, um, yeah. I like to think the old style box sets were best, better than open world modules, because somehow or another, open world modules still have to have a beginning, middle, and end, and that just feels wrong because it's an open world kind of thing. However, the old box set said, here's the area, the region, the world, whatever we're talking about. Here's a plot here. Here's a plot there. Here's a plot over here. Here's a plot over here. Storytellers have fun. Pe tables make up your own characters. Figure out what you want to do next. Where do you want to start? Where do you want to go? That's all up to you. What intrigues you? And then you build your campaign within this box set or this open world concept. I loved that. And I think... Though we don't do those box adventures anymore, that there needs to be more source book world type things of that nature. Here's the thing, though. It's all pieces. It's all building blocks, right? And that's how you create the sandbox with narrative, because each one of those plots that you're talking about is a narrative. Right. Mm -hmm. When you arrive at this place where they've gotten the rumor that there is this thing to do, there is a an arc, a thing to do. So. Whether or not you create an over-narrative or not is up to any storyteller. And that's kind of why I like narrative versus railroading, because I try to tell my players this too. You want to be railroaded. You may not want to admit it, but you do, because you want a story. Right. You just don't want to feel like you're being railroaded. You don't want me to say, oh, you've been arrested by the Duke, and he says you have to do this, so you're going to do it, or you're going to rot in jail for 30 years. <laughs> if I can couch that in some narrative flavor, you're all about going on the quest. So, narrative. It's yeah. just a matter of how much, how heavy handed. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. So, so Glenn is the Zen storyteller of the group. <laughs> yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely not either of us. All right, Sadie. So we've got time for one more question here tonight, and it's going to be a doozy. So I'm going to apologize up front, but you're on Twitter. You've probably seen this on Twitter. There has been uh -huh. uh, kind of a thread going around asking if you could take a single IP product from anywhere, any book you've read, any show you've watched, whatever, that hasn't been made into a TTRPG and make one, what would it be? This is such a mean question. I know. I, I'm, oh. I'm the mean question guy. That's apparently okay. how my role is being you defined on this show. You lured me into a false so. sense of security and then you yeah. stabbed me in the gut. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. That's a good question. So if I had to pick uh, any IP, any IP, okay, I will tell you, and you're going to laugh at me because it's very cold and other deep, but I think the answer is, I see I'm going to change my mind in a week and I'm going to be sitting here like, why totally. didn't I tell him this one instead? <laughs> that's, the, that's the horrible part of this question is that then, for the rest of my us, life. Then hit, hit us, us on Twitter, Twitter every time you get a new idea. <laughs> Okay, okay. <laughs> That's a good, good That door is always open. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you, dear Tabletop Journeys, this... Okay. Right now, the answer is the Persona series. Because Ooh. I really like a couple things about what these games do. One, I like that you are mechanically rewarded for bonding with people. And in ways that speak to their personality, right? You have what's called social linking with people and they go from ranks one to 10. And 
that's it's kind of seeing their side story right it's kind of like almost side questing with them sort of but mm -hmm. it's very personal to them so in a persona game you round up your group of friends and you try to stop the end of the world very simple but you also social link with them and that's how you see more of them so you might pick up say who's a really good example uh makoto you might pick up makoto and your social link with her might deal with some of like her challenges in feeling pressure from the outside and trying to do always the right thing, but sometimes it doesn't always work and she, she can't be perfect all the time. And that's like eating her alive because, you know, college is coming up and she has a lot of expectations on her and you go through these scenes with her, you help her make decisions, you talk things through with her and, and you bond with her. And then at the same time, one might be very emotionally driven. One might be, you need to go help this guy. The track team is bullying him and he needs your help working through it. And I'm, I'm simplifying these down a lot and also accidentally changing minor details, but that's fine. They're, they're hard to summarize. <laughs> that's that's um, totally in play. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it. Um, but what happens is every time you complete a scene, you progress in their social rank and they give you benefits in the main gameplay loop that speak to their personality, which is very cool. If you have someone who is very organized and tactical and cool headed, then the benefits that she gives you are like you start to see enemies' weaknesses more often. You get the chance to act first when a combat begins. Because you are bonding with her, she is teaching you things. And that means that you can play better. You can be a hero better because you are bonding with her. And that is very cool to me. That sounds you know? really cool. I mean, it's, it's awesome. It's I love just seeing what benefits they give you and thinking about like the things that you are being taught by these people that you come to care about. Persona is like really aesthetically driven. I like that. I think it translates well to a, to an RPG. They're very like the, especially five is very glitzy. It's, it makes you feel very cool. It feels like a heist film the whole way through, but it, that's not the only package. Persona 4 is very small town and eerie. There's like a fog that washes over everything and it kind of suffocates you in that small town closeness. Meanwhile, Persona 3 is very dark. Your main character is obviously depressed and the dungeons are dark. The mood is overall much more depressing and you feel like you and your companions are like this dragged down team against the world and and so what i like that you can take these mechanics and you can take this idea of you and your companions against the world and it translates so easily to so many like the, the games themselves prove that you could run anything you could run like the apocalypse you could run this small town kind of vague horror thing where your shadows are like the worst version of you you could run this like heist film where it's you against this like oppressive you know these op oppressive systems in place and like the, the adults aren't doing anything to dismantle their own corrupt power so it's up to you because mm. the gameplay loop is fulfilling no matter where you're in which is 
you grab your team, you bond with them, you make each other stronger, you unlock your own power, your own, like it's called persona. You are summoning a version of yourself that gets stronger as you emotionally become stronger. And so that that speaks to me so much. If anyone is out there is listening, has the power <laughs> to bring me on to make the Persona RPG. I mean, that, that sounds like the sort of thing that is just built for powered by the Apocalypse build or something like that kind of structure yeah. to yeah. it, which sounds With fantastic. the connections yeah. uh, that we had in the real thing is one of the things that I was thinking yeah. of when we played uh, that. Like you could, With- if you could build that mechanic kind of where the real thing did the discoveries, that would be a, a great way to put that in there. Mm. And if you haven't heard of it, the real thing is a Powered by the Apocalypse build game that just came out. Their Kickstarter might still be live, but it funded in eight hours. We did the actual play for it. Yeah. It's based off of the Faith No More album, The Real Thing, Ooh. and it's endorsed it's by Faith No More. <laughs> it was That's really good. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It's called The Real Thing. The, the Real, real, real yeah. Thing. Uh, okay. they, are, they are on Twitter at thing RPG. And so if you search on Kickstarter for the real thing, I think I'm it's still running. Yeah. Supposed to come away from this with two more things to buy. <laughs> what you've done to me. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> I, I feel like this conversation could go on all night long, but alas, Sadie, we should, uh, we should bring, uh, bring some sort of a close here. So could you please, I, uh, I know if you put, Step away from Kickstarter for a second. <laughs> 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 um, uh, but it looks really you, cool. Uh, for, it it is really cool. <laughs> it is really cool. Yeah. Um, tell our audience where they can find you and where they can connect with you, because I'm sure that there are going to be a ton of people that want to go ahead and uh, and start following you after this episode. Yes, you can find me at uh, the world's most pretentious online handle. Uh, you can find me at incandescent. It is the word <laughs> incandescent with an A stuck before the E, because I felt artsy that day. That's where I. Primarily hang out. I think you can also find me at Sadie or Lady on Instagram, but I only remember to check that like maybe once every three weeks. So Twitter is the place to go. Yeah. Uh, uh, and if nothing else, there's always this, there's always sadielowry.com, which has a ton of information about the projects that you've worked on and how to go ahead and contact you also. Not to go ahead and steal your thunder there, but that's... Yeah. No, no, that's so. great. Thank you. Um, sadielowry.com is another great place to contact me. And it also has a really interesting article that I'm partway through reading entitled (laughs) in her blog, MMOs and Storytelling, Final Fantasy XIV, World of Warcraft, and Constructing Living Worlds. And it's it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad you are enjoying it so far. Yeah. If you have have thoughts when you're done reading it, let me know. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely, we will. So this has been an amazing conversation, Sadie. Thank you very much for coming on tonight and talking to us. So, like I said, I, I feel like this conversation could go on all night long because there are so many things that I wish that <laughs> – there's so many other topics I wish we could go ahead and discuss. Like this, is, this has been fantastic. So thank you very much for coming on. Yeah. yeah thank you so uh, much for having me. This has just been so fun. Absolutely. Yeah, we pride ourselves on our utter enjoyment of – talking to awesome people about awesome things and you are right there among the awesome of the awesome i really enjoy the fact that through this conversation that we are so in sync on how we like to game and how we approach narratives and storytelling um i think that is part of what comes through in this book and that is definitely something that our audience will connect with i really appreciate you giving us the opportunity to talk with you tonight and so we can spread what you do and be more direct about it to our little corner of the TTRPG community so that they can recognize what's out there and recognize other ways and better ways and different ways to to tell stories and connect 
And that that if there's a theme from what I got from you, it's is connection. Mm. And that's what made the Nether Deep sing. That's what made Persona sing as you described it so eloquently. And that's I think a connection is what made this whole conversation. I think so too. I feel connected with all three of you. I oh, and you. I it just makes me so happy to have this conversation because the, the fact that I feel like we connect on what makes stories important to us. It's been such a joy to to talk with people who I feel understand where I'm coming from and who have been telling these stories longer than I have. I feel like I could sit and just listen to you talk about your games for hours and, you know, to get to hear some of your history and, and then to feel like, you know, I'm coming in a little bit later, but telling things that that you connect with that that's why we did the podcast because we have all this history we have all this lore we, we decided that it would be selfish of us to keep it to ourselves so we're out here, here trying to give it out, <laughs> out there we're pretty modest too humble yeah humblosity is is uh what we are known for there it is you're made of word. that's my word for the week word of the episode oh, <laughs> i got to be here for it thank yeah. you humblosity huh? that is right. our episode for tonight we have got one more week of critical role content next week is going to be all about the blood hunter we are coming together for our blood hunter class and subclass discussion uh next saturday and then following that is going to be our class warfare of the mm-hmm. blood hunter class where we're going to take three <gasps> blood hunters and throw them up against uh, some unknown foes because we've got friend of the show Scald from Awfully Queer Heroes joining us on that episode to go ahead and uh, play the DM for the week. Uh, so we actually don't know who we're going to be facing on that episode. So that's going to be right. a, that's going to be a good. Time, be the first so. time we're going into it blind. Normally we generate those baddies be randomly. So really looking forward to that. But uh, Sadie, again, thank you so very much for coming on here. This has been awesome. It has been so great. Thank you so much. Thank Absolutely, you. Yeah. All right, everybody out there, thank you very much for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed the interview with Sadie Lowry, and uh, we will go ahead and talk to you again next week. Thank you so much, everybody. Good night. Peace. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, at TT Journeys, by joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. And remember, if you want early access to all of our episodes, a chance to drop dice with your favorite hosts, and maybe even appear in one of our actual plays, you can join our Patreon to help support the show at patreon.com forward slash ttjourneys. You're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible. We would appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays, and every Tuesday features our actual play episodes. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler along our path, we did you shade and sweet water.